It took 10 plagues before Pharaoh released the Israelites from bondage. By that time, they had witnessed an unrelenting fury of devastation fall upon Egypt. It became clear to both Egypt and Israel alike that this was indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had called upon Pharaoh, and that there is none like him in all the earth. In order to remember their deliverance, God commanded the Israelites to observe the Passover each year. Today, we remember the deliverance of our fathers, our families, and ourselves from sin and death through the sacrament. Like the Israelites of old, as we witness and remember our deliverance through Jesus Christ, we are blessed to have His power to be with us. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. I name all 10 plagues. Let's see. So there's turning the water to blood. There's the frogs. It's two. Um, Probably not. <laughs> um, the 10 plagues were frogs, turning the Nile into blood, lice, um, the cattle dying, the grain, like a starvation, right? I know there's locusts. I know I'm not going in the order <laughs> at this point. Um, the firstborn son and the, oh, the darkness. I have family whispering to me on the sidelines trying to get me through this answer. <laughs> Welcome everyone. Thank you for being here today. Today's discussion topics come from our studies of Exodus chapters seven through 13. And the first topic we're gonna discuss is lessons from the 10 plagues. And the second topic is, the sacrament helps me remember my deliverance through Jesus Christ. And to help us with our discussion, we want to first welcome back uh, one of our scholars, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Always good to be here. James is a writer and historian, among many other amazing things. And seated next to James is uh, our special guest, Joanne Seeley. Joanne is an adjunct instructor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at BYU. Welcome, Joanne. It's great to be here. I love the Old Testament. So the first topic we're going to discuss is lessons from the 10 plagues. James, you want to go ahead and give us an overview of what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. So Moses has been called back to, to help God deliver the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage uh, in one of the really central stories of all the Bible. And at, at this point, he's come back and the first response from Pharaoh was to make their labor harder and worse. And I love it because it's the start of Israel's relationship with the Lord. The Lord God of Israel is not like the gods of Egypt. And that's something that they need to see and feel. And that might be one reason why the plagues are so pervasive, that it's a lesson they're going to learn. And we don't learn lessons the first time, most of us. It takes a little while. It's a process. And through that, as we go through this process of learning about those 10 plagues, we're going to see how much patience it's going to take. Okay, here's another one. When is this finally going yep. to happen? When Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, it's Pharaoh's response that I think is the, the sort of the beginning of all of this. Pharaoh responds, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And so this process that they're going to go through, both Pharaoh 
and the Israelites are going to start to learn who the Lord is and what he does. Moses uh, and the Lord are not always bringing the plagues. They'll bring them and then stop them. And, and they give Pharaoh multiple opportunities to say, okay, I've learned. I'm going to let everyone go. But it's hard, right? So God is, is a mighty God. He's a God of deliverance. It's sort of up to us how hard um, we're going to make the Lord work to, to bring those purposes to pass, right? Right. Okay, so let's start with the Egyptians. What are some of the lessons from, from their perspective that they are learning through this process? In Exodus 8.15, there have been the first few plagues, um, and Pharaoh says, please stop it. I'll do whatever. I'll, I'll let people go. And, and then this happens after the, the plague of frogs stop. It says in verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. That, that word respite means a break, right? Mm. It got easy again. How easy it is in life. When we feel that we're not invincible, we go ask God, how do I turn this around? I'm going to change. How do I help? What ideas do you have for maintaining that feeling of, I, I can do this, I can make a change? Please. Um, one thing that I used to tell people when I was serving as a missionary was uh, CPR, church, pray, read. If you pray every single day and you read the scriptures every single day and you study them, not just you know glance them over, and you attend church every week, it's a good way to remind yourself why we're here, what we're doing, and that we need to, uh, like President Nelson said, repent every single day just a little bit. How do you feel the, the role of the Holy Ghost helps you in this process of reminding yourself of what you're trying to accomplish? Well, one thing I've, I've learned in my life is that if you don't listen the first time, like Pharaoh, it's going to come again until you learn the lesson. Okay. Um, but also, if you don't listen the first time, the Holy Spirit is not going to stay there and yell at you. He's going to go away until you're ready to listen again. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's go back to Joanne. I want to learn more about some of these individual plagues and how they affected the Egyptians? That's an interesting question. I generally think of them in totality. Okay. That instead of just one at a time, because they each have their, you know, different effects on the people. But the point was that they were seeing the Lord manifest his powers. Usually I think more about the Israelites and how they're being affected, because we think this is a story about the plagues and how they sort of, you know, beat the Egyptians down. But I think it's a just as big a learning process for the Israelites and what they're learning about the Lord. And I think one thing as we think about both groups that's important to note about the plagues is that there is some escalation, right? So the Nile turning to blood has serious consequences, but, but it's mostly impressive. It gets their attention, right? And then life gets more and more difficult. We'd mentioned it, it was just after the frogs that, that Pharaoh sees the respite and hardens his heart. Once you're getting down to losing livestock, that's, that's your food source, that's serious. Hail is taking the grain, that's the staff of food. Um, the locusts finish everything. Now you're looking from not having enough to being really barren. 
The darkness is interesting. It's described as being a thick darkness, a darkness you can feel, the kind of darkness we read about in 3rd Nephi, mm. right? So I just hope you can get a sense that the, the plagues are growing. And of course, death of the firstborn is this most intimate, personal, tragic of all the plagues, right? And so for the Egyptians, what they're learning is, is there's a price to be paid for the, the injustice they've allowed to prevail, right? When you've enslaved people for so long, right? That there's a price to be paid. For the Israelites, I think this has to be a mix of really impressive and really frightening. Because on the one hand, you're seeing God's power and the God of your ancestors, who maybe you don't remember super well, is, is reintroducing himself to you as a people. On the other hand, with every new plague, your neighbors are getting more upset. Mm. Pharaoh's getting more upset. And if the Lord doesn't deliver you, you're in some trouble. So right? it takes a lot of faith to continue through this process, especially as you can kind of see this gradual increase of, okay, this is affecting my life a little more and a little yep. more. Am I still going to stay on, on this path? This is a trust-building exercise for them because when they get out in the wilderness, they are going to have to decide if they're going to commit their lives to God at Mount Sinai. Or even do I trust Moses? Yes. Yep. And, and they will go back and forth for a long time. <laughs> they're learning, can I trust God and how powerful is he? And are we going to be okay? And I think, too, we've talked about how for the Egyptians, there's a certain temptation to stick with an unjust system because it's familiar, because mm. it's very comfortable. I think sometimes for the Israelites, there's the same temptation because being enslaved is familiar. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when it goes out to, are we going to challenge this? And we're getting pushback from Pharaoh, pushback from Egypt, there's always that temptation to cower and be quiet instead of stepping up and trusting well, the Lord. Well, they express it over and over when they get in the wilderness. Wish we were back in Egypt, <laughs> you know? And finally, when they get tired of the manna and they're sick of eating it, they're like, you know, where's our salad bar? We want our cucumbers <laughs> and leeks that were in Egypt, you know? So they keep going back to that was comfortable. We had our needs. So Joanne, have you ever had a, an experience where you've had to, the fear of getting out of a comfort zone, even if it was like, okay, this is going to be better for me, but it's still scary to get out of that comfortable place where you were before. Oh yeah. In my case, a, a serious illness that took a very long time. You're thinking, I can't even imagine any reason to go through this. And on the other end, you go, oh, I learned so much, and that was really hard, and I wouldn't wish that, but you find that there's things that you grew from, and you learned a little bit maybe about compassion for other people that go through things like that, and it's not until the other side where you start to put it all together. You know, and I, I want to uh, ask the audience, so when have you had to exercise faith in the Lord and really take that leap to try to improve or better yourself? Kathy, go ahead. As James mentioned, the Egyptians had to make the bricks with less tools and the same amount of people. Well, corporations have cut down on the amount of people that they have. They've laid off people. And then the people that remain have to work harder. Mm -hmm. 
I was in that position. And I'm climbing the ladder at this time in my life. My children are older, and I'm trying to reach that goal, and yet I lost my position as a trainer in the corporation I was working in. I went back to an entry-level position. And that's where I had to go to the Lord and say, why? I'm trying to provide for my family. And so what was his response to you? I got the feeling of comfort that it will be okay. So looking back, do you, are you able to kind of piece together the steps where the Lord is like, okay, that's all, it's fine, I'm going to put you here. And also I got the, the feeling from the Spirit that there's worse things in life than this. I really feel like in my life I relate a lot um, to this idea that sometimes we have expectations maybe of work or schooling. I remember when I got back from my mission, I was at a school in Ohio that, that I loved and tuition had gotten a lot more expensive in those two years at this private school. And I had this strong impression where I thought of Pharaoh. And I thought from the Israelites' perspective, the Lord's hand was in it hardening Pharaoh's heart because Israel wasn't supposed to stay here. They were supposed to, to move on. And I feel like one way God has guided my life is to close some doors and send me somewhere else. And I transferred out west to a different school, and that ended up being where I built my life and met my wife. And, you know, I got to my promised land because there were some doors closed. Yeah, there's one thing, learning to trust and accept and move on, and, and there's another thing to having the faith of, well, I'm going to do this because the Lord wants me to or needs me to, and I'm asking for these blessings. But if not, even if I don't receive those blessings, I'm going to do this anyway because the Lord's asked me to. It's another level. And the Israelites are going to get there after a long, long time. It's going to take a very long time. Moses means a lot to me. Um, and the children of Israel, we, we've talked about how they're going to waver. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to really give them credit in this one moment for, for having some of that but if not faith right, for being willing to stretch further. And so I've got a poem where I think about what it might have felt like to the Israelites, um, wondering whether you're going to be redeemed or not, and, and why I think they went through anyway. This is called Prayer on the Red Seashore. It's set a little bit ahead as they're about to cross it. And I've wondered, what is it like going in when you really don't know if that water is coming, crashing back down on you or not? If these walls of water fall, O Lord, let me drown with Moses and let me praise you with my final breath for lending me his mad prophetic dream, for letting me wander out past the edge of this world beside a man who could see all the glory of Egypt and still say it wasn't enough. If these walls of water fall, O Lord, let me drown with Moses. Yes, let me die with the same fire in my eyes Moses saw in a desert bush. I think this, this vision of redemption that they have, right, um, is incredible that, that they're able to see beyond their situation um, into that other state, and they're willing to go and take some big risks to get there. We talked about the last plague and the slaying of the firstborn. And, and I think that's a moment 
that, that shows us a lot about who the Israelites are as they choose to put that blood on the door. I'm excited uh, to continue our discussion about these plagues uh, in our footnotes portion where we can kind of get into a, little, a few more details. But uh, this has been a great talk about lessons from the 10 plagues. The word remember is important to me because um, the Savior has promised that uh, if we keep his commandments and, and do what is right, then we're going to be rewarded and blessed uh, in heaven in the next life or right now. For me, it's important because if I'm going to remember something, I'm going to also commit to it. I'm going to also say, I'm going to put this first and I'm going to make it important. Remembering our past, remembering the past of our ancestors, it can, we can learn a lot from it. We're here in life to learn. And what's the point of trying to learn something if you're not going to remember it later and apply it? We always say, you know, try and learn from history because history will repeat itself and there's always a better way to go about it that maybe the foregoers uh, didn't really get the same insight that we do now. So the second topic we're going to discuss today is the sacrament helps me remember my deliverance through Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is that there is a great connection between the Passover and the sacrament. And to help us get into this topic, we had a great question from one of our viewers. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Espinoza from Grand Cayman. In the story of the Passover, the Israelites are given explicit instructions about their doorposts. What are some of the symbolic meanings of this that can be applied to our current day? I'm glad we have a scholar here with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm here right now in my capacity as a nephew. My aunt, one year we went to her house for Passover, and she said something that's really changed the way I think about this blood on the doorposts. Okay. And that is, there's a certain amount of plausible deniability for the average Israelite through the other plagues. They can say that's Moses' fault. The Lord then asks them, he for, for basically two things before this last plague, right? One is to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the door. The other is to make unleavened bread, right? And both of those are signs of trust. So the, the blood on the door, if you put blood on your door and the Lord doesn't deliver you, Egypt's coming for revenge, right? And so that's a moment where they're staking their lives on a new thing. And you are no longer slaves in Egypt now. Like you've, you've shifted into some other state and whether it works out or not. The bread is interesting. If God says, don't put yeast in your bread, you're saying, I trust that I will be freed after 430 years tonight. Right? That, that when salvation comes, it comes in a moment. So... So that combined imagery of the, the lamb's blood and the unleavened bread is saying, I trust God to deliver me, not someday, but now. Joanne, what do you think? I think that this is another step in forming their identity as a covenant community. When they put the blood on their door posts and the lintel, they're posting a sign outside. I am part. I'm in. I'm, I'm going to go all the way. And it's kind of like what you're saying, James, this is really, it's no longer on Moses, it's on them saying, this is, this is who we are, I am a part of this. And that's a big risk that they are, are taking by doing that. Right, and they're specifically instructed 
that they should remember this night forever. So um, what, what is the significance of this? Why are they going to remember this specific night? Well, until now, they've been slaves in Egypt, and they've been in the service of Pharaoh. And in fact, the word there, the word service there is a really meaty word. It's used when it says hard bondage. It's the same Hebrew word as the word service. It's avodah. So they're in avodah to Pharaoh. They're in his service. But then when they leave Egypt, the Lord is going to ask them to do the Passover. And the same word is used, the Passover service. So they are transitioning from service to Pharaoh to a new master. They're going to be in service to the Lord, only it's going to take on this broader idea of, of worship. When the Lord describes the service of the tabernacle and worship at the tabernacle later on, it's the same word. So it's sort of transformative. They're going to move from one kind of service to another, and they're going to have a whole new identity now because they're going to be in service to the Lord. What do you think are some of the challenges of, of doing something like that, of Although they were in bondage, they were in service of Pharaoh. Do you think it would, are there still some hesitation, do you think? Or what, what's, I mean, what I'm expect? sure it's scary to make that choice. Once you make it, I don't think there's a more beautiful feeling in this world, right? Than to say that I've been acted upon, right? I've been enslaved, I've been trapped, and now I choose. Um, I choose to take on this new master, right? And God is my master, and I stand before him. And, and this, this way that service becomes ritual and worship is going to collapse time forever, right? Every year, this is going to happen again. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by ordinance forever. Every time they eat the unleavened bread, they're entering that relationship again. It is the pivotal point for remembrance in the Old Testament because this uh, redemption from Egypt becomes the great symbol of redemption all the way through the Old Testament. Whenever any of the prophets are trying to help them understand that when the Messiah comes, he will redeem them, they point back to the Exodus and the redemption from Egypt. So it's what they think of when they try to understand what it means to be redeemed by the Lord. What sort of connection did you guys make on how learning about the Passover can enhance your experience every Sunday as you take the sacrament? Please. Recently in June, my husband and I experienced a miscarriage. And that was by far the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. And while I was going through hours and hours of suffering and pain, it really struck me how Christ felt that and He understood me. It really humbles you. And that, that humbling and proving and learning that you can do these hard things because Christ did them for us as well. So how does that help you as you go back every Sunday? How does that experience help you heal from, from what you had to go through? It brings me to this point where I'm, I'm thankful for it. It's not just something I do every week anymore. It's not just a habit. It's something that I get to do. 
What a touching story. I mean, even as you uh, share that, in my mind, I'm just thinking, like, how good is God? Other lessons, done. It's when we have that trial of faith, when we have to depend on God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Like over here, the sacrament means so much more. So Don, uh, tell us about in, in your own life, how have you used that to help you strengthen your testimony? You know, for me, when, when I'm taking the sacrament and I'm, I'm sitting here and remembering, you know, the things of the week and the things of my past, and I'm sitting here grateful. Uh, and, and I do actually sit here and picture uh, my Savior, Jesus Christ because he sacrificed for us. And for me, it, it gives me a great feeling, uh, you know, because it's not something I did, but it's it, the appreciation, the love, the care that was given specifically for me that also helps me want to step up a little bit more each week. And it brings us back to this, this connection with the sacrament, with uh, the Passover, all connected through Jesus Christ. We take the sacrament every week, and there's some weeks, I got four kids. There are some weeks when what I'm thinking about during the sacrament is, how can I tell them to be quiet without <laughs> drawing attention to myself, right? <laughs> right? Like we're just making it through. There are some weeks I really need that reconnection with the sacrament. Sometimes when we need him, like Christ can come quickly. Okay. Right? And deliver us now. And I think there can be that prayer in my heart, like, come now, come quickly as I eat that bread. Okay. And I, I think there's two other things we can think about here. One is that the Passover service and the sacrament service are both participatory. They partake of the bread and the wine and they internalize it. And in the same, we do the same thing in the sacrament. The rabbis used the bread as a symbol of covenant. And by partaking of the bread, you were, you were showing by your actions that you were internalizing the covenant and you're assenting to it. So it's a great symbol that way. The second thing I think is that the Lord gives them the Passover service as a commemoration or a remembrance so they can always remember what happened back at that time. And the wonderful thing is that when they're, after they've gone through the wilderness and they're right on the brink of coming in the promised land, Moses is giving his final sermons and he repeats all of the law to them to prepare them because he's not going with them. And as he's going through the Ten Commandments, he gets to the commandment of keeping the Sabbath day holy. And then in Deuteronomy 5, chapter, verse 15, he says, and remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and a stretched out arm. Therefore, the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. So he tells them, every Sabbath, you remember this deliverance from Egypt. If every Sabbath we thought, what great things has the Lord done for me personally? Where has he redeemed me? Or... What has he done for my family? I have even thought about when, when did the Lord bring the gospel to my family? That was one of the great things he did. So it's, it's a wonderful exercise that we can do. And we're told to do that every su every Sunday. Every Sunday with the sacrament. Yes. 
it, it's not just done for our ancestors, that, that this is done because of what the Lord did for me is constantly true. We always get stuck. We always get trapped. We always get delivered. Our and own so, personal deliverance. And so the, the bread and those things are to remind us of that. And you think about Jesus and the apostles at the Last Supper, right? From, from Jesus' perspective, when it's Passover, he's gone to the temple and he's there with his apostles. He might have said something when he lifted up the bread, like, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungry, let them come and eat. All who are in need, let them join in the Passover with us before saying, this is my body. Break and eat oh, it. Okay. You see the link there? Yeah, 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 yeah. The cup, you drink four cups of wine during Passover. So it's no wonder the apostles were sleepy afterwards. <laughs> Those symbols meant something deep to the apostles who were sitting with him, right? It linked that moment with the history of redemption, with their, this is what the Lord did for me to deliver me. Thank you very much. This has been a great discussion. Thank you, audience, for your amazing comments. Uh, we've learned a lot about lessons from the 10 plagues and the sacrament helps me remember my deliverance through Jesus Christ. The big thing that stuck out to me was that sometimes we need to remember that we are like the bad guys in the story and that sometimes we need to learn the lesson um, and hopefully not on a great massive scale where we're being plagued. but. Um, but, but to let God work in our lives and to learn from both sides of the story. It's really interesting for me to learn about how the sacrament and the Passover connect. It's not really a connection I've ever made before, but the symbolism is something that I really internalized about how uh, the unleavened bread and the glasses of wine that were taken during the Passover can represent the blood and the body of Christ. Welcome to the footnotes portion of this episode. Uh, very, very excited for today. Uh, I've literally had this episode circled on my calendar. And I'm, I'm glad that you're here, James. I'm excited to learn from you. And uh, Joanne, I'm excited to learn from you as well, specifically about something we teased a little bit in the earlier portion uh, with the, the meaning of the lamb. So in Exodus, Moses calls for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And Joanne, I know you have experience uh, with this and you have a lot of knowledge. And I would love for you to teach us about specifically the sacrifice of the lamb. So my family has had the opportunity to live in Jerusalem for five years. While we were living there, we made an effort to really visit everywhere we could to that was connected with the scriptures and and just sort of see the see the sites and the land and and how it was a setting for what was going on. And one of the things we decided to do was to attend the Samaritan Passover. The Samaritans are actual descendants of the Samaritan people from the time of the Old and New Testament, which means that they have a mixed heritage of Israelite blood and other peoples who came and moved in the land. And they're a very small minority now. They live in two places in, in the country. And once a year, they gather all the people that are still there, the Samaritans, they gather together to celebrate Passover. It's their 
main sort of festive gathering as a people. And so we decided to drive up there and we drove up to the hill country where they have their sort of central square. It's their most holy place where they perform the Passover sacrifice. And they are the only people that currently fulfill all the biblical injunctions for Passover because they still sacrifice a lamb. Uh, Jewish people all over the world don't do this because they believe it's necessary to have the temple to sacrifice the lamb at. But the Samaritans will still do this. Like within a, in a, a home setting or is this like in a courtyard? It's like a big plaza in okay. the middle of the town. And so they have this big plaza area. And when we went there, we watched, we went there quite a few hours early because this is a long process. And we saw the people gathering. They're coming from different villages and it's sort of a festive, almost like Thanksgiving feel. They're all dressed in their wow. nicest clothes. You know, you sort of have this Sunday best kind of feel. Everybody's happy. Uh, they're greeting cousins and family that have all gathered together. And while all this is going on, they're making preparations. So in one place, you can see the priests preparing the pits where they're going to roast the lambs. This starts hours earlier. They have these deep pits, and they've got the fires going down where they'll burn the fires for a couple of hours to make really hot coals. So there's not just one lamb. It's a collection of— It's for everybody. Everybody. Okay. So I don't know how many families will bring a lamb, but there's quite a few that they— will sacrifice, and then they will take them back to, after they're roasted, then they'll take their portion back to their home to share with their family or with their okay. neighbors. And then in another place, you will see the priests who have gathered together, and particularly the high priest in the center, they start reading the liturgy. So they read the whole story of the Passover and all the extra liturgy that goes along with it. And this takes a couple of hours. So they're having this going on while the other people are preparing. So we were sitting there just sort of watching everything, and then something really amazing happened. I was watching this, and I'm, I haven't seen any lambs yet, and I saw that some people were starting to bring lambs in, and in my head, I guess I just imagined you go to the market and buy a lamb from a pen, you know, that there would be, you know, a little herd brought in, but instead I saw youngsters sort of um, maybe— 10 or 12-year-olds to young teenagers who were each bringing a single lamb in, and they were petting it, they were calling it by name, I suddenly realized this was not an animal from a pen. This was a beloved pet that they were bringing to offer as sacrifice. And, you know, they're it's not just one minute. This is a few hours. They're bringing them in. They're petting them. They're loving them. And for the first time in my life, I started to understand a little bit more the meaning of sacrifice. They were giving something precious to them, something from their heart. They were giving their very best to God. And I started to think, whoa, this is what sacrifice is. It's giving your very best and if you think about this in terms of the sacrifice of the Savior, He gave His very best to us. It, it's the same sort of idea. We were kind of worried because I, don't, I didn't grow up around animals. I don't know very much about them. I've never been around the death of an animal, so I was, I was 
tents, you know, for the sacrificial part. And we brought our children with us. You know, even as, um, sorry to interrupt, I no just, problem. I'm fascinated with this. When you shared that about the personal side of it, like even as you're, like I'm starting to get <laughs> choked up, I'm thinking about, you know, bringing this lamb that you've loved and you've nurtured and you've named. And raised. Like that's got to change your perspective on the sacrament and on that sacrifice on such a deep level, having experienced that firsthand. Yeah, because, you know, usually when we read the Old Testament, I get this from students in classes, how can we, we don't want to read Leviticus. <laughs> they don't want to read about all the different kinds of sacrifice. But I usually share this with them mm. because I want them to feel that sacrifice wasn't just killing animals. It was giving your best to God. And I seeing that, I started to understand it at a deeper level for the first time. And, you know, we were, we were worried about our kids watching it, but we could see they were, they were even picking up, oh, mm -hmm. this me is meaningful. I feel like modern life things get so compartmentalized. I'm doing this, I'm this sort of person, I'm doing this, I'm this sort of person. But you talk about this sacrifice, and this is a thing you know is coming for a while mm -hmm. yes. in the year, right? And it's it's woven into your year. It's woven into the physical act of, of eating. It becomes part of you, you yes, know. Yes, yes. Did it change from, I want to go and uh, watch this experience take place to a, I'm having an experience myself? Yes, it, it, it really did. We, I wanted to see it because I've taught, you know, the Passover and the Old Testament for a lot of years. And I thought, you know, this is sort of living Old Testament right here in front of me. And so it did. It changed from, from viewing something happening to experiencing what was happening. And it, it was really powerful. And so we sat there, and, and right at sundown is when they sacrifice the lambs. It has to be right at the moment of sundown. So the priest times his reading of the scripture to get exactly to the point where they're going to sacrifice the lambs right at the moment of sundown. And as you watch this, there's kind of a, you know, a tense hum that you, the people are anticipating this. And he will get to that point, and the other priests have lined up, and they've got their knife ready to sacrifice the lambs. And that was the moment I was the most worried about, because it, it was going to be awkward for me, I thought. And when they did it, I was stunned by the reaction of the people. I don't know what I was thinking. I just, I guess you have these ideas, this is going to be gruesome. And what happened was the people started to sing and clap and hug each other, and they were just in total joy. And I, I thought, what is happening here? And they took their hands, and they dipped their hands in the blood, and then they would take the blood, and they would go around and wipe it on each other's foreheads. So like even they'd go wipe on the grandpas and grandmas who couldn't even get up to jump in the singing and dancing. And the babies that they were held in arms, they would wipe it on their forehead to include them in the community group. And as I was experiencing this, I kept thinking, what is happening? What is happening? And then it just hit me. They are exulting in the blood of the Lamb right there. And they may think of it differently than we do, but they understood that they were fulfilling the commandments of God 
And because of that, I have never felt the same way about the sacrificing of the lamb. I realize now this is a, a joyous offering to God. And they were offering this in, you know, in the same way that it's been done for thousands of years. And, and we can make our offerings the best of what we have with a joyful heart, too, if we could learn from watching them do this. And I think being able to imagine that atmosphere is really helpful, not just for these chapters, but throughout Exodus. You'll see blood, oil, and water yes. show up multiple times when they make covenants. Sometimes priests are sprinkling bloods on, on the people to show that commitment. And so those images can be, can be strange to us if we didn't grow up mm -hmm. with it, right? But, but I think if you can connect and recognize to the people in Exodus, this is connection. This is being deeply a part of something. Yes. The last thing that actually was really impactful for me was, and we had to get home. It was really late. They, they don't get to start eating till you know, close to 11 o'clock or midnight because it takes so long to roast and all that. And so we got in our car and my husband was driving and I turned around. I thought, I'm just going to look one more time at the hilltop. And what I saw just... I could not believe it. And I said, David, you have to pull the car over and stop and look at this. And we were quite a ways down the hill, you know, so it was a long way away. And he pulled the car over and he looked with me and we could, of course, we could smell the roasting smell. And as we looked up, we could see all the smoke billowing up into heaven. And I went, oh, this is the sweet savor to the Lord. This is what he's talking about. I always wondered how could sacrificed animals at the temple be something sweet. But I looked at that and I realized, oh, he's smelling the roasted lamb. He's seeing the smoke that's it's symbolic of their obedience and their commemoration and remembrance of him and their redemption. And I thought, that's what the temple looked like. So what, you know, let's talk about this change. Uh, anything specific that has changed in your just overall worship? through this experience? I think I maybe started to pay attention to little details of things that we're asked to do that we don't really know why we're doing them. Okay. It helps us remember and think and learn through active things. In our tradition, sometimes when people go to the temple the first time, they're surprised. And I think that this has taught me that ritual when you do it as set out by the Lord, teaches you things and you gain understanding as you do it over and over, just like they do the Passover every year. And there's things that we can learn by the repetitive process that don't dawn on us for a long time. It, it was years before I saw that and, and had a complete shift in my feeling towards sacrifice and all those chapters in Leviticus. Yeah. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe we came to earth to get bodies, but we don't always take advantage as modern people for how you learn through your body. Yes. Mm. Right? And so I think ritual can be one way that God is teaching our bodies and, and there's sights and smells and it's, it's just a different, more complete way to teach. But I think God wants to relate to us on all those levels. You know, something you said that really stood out to me was the idea of the, your reaction when they brought out the lamb and how they were joyous and happy. Because here they're sacrificing something that is so precious 
And you think it would be, you know, we get like that sometimes and we kind of begrudgingly <laughs> give something out. We, it was, we were talking to my son who's on a mission right now and he was saying how when he first went out, it was really hard. He was thinking about all the stuff he was missing out on. And he said, mom, dad, he goes, now, he goes, I really, I'm getting blessed so much. He goes, this isn't a sacrifice at all. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, where have you been your whole life? As me and mom are trying to teach you this, but he's figuring it out. So I love that you saw that, that they recognize that, yes, we are sacrificing something so precious. However, they're focused on what are we gaining yeah. through this sacrifice? They do not think of the, the bloody part of this as death. They think of the blood as life. And it's the life God gives them through keeping their, His commandments and the life He gave them through their redemption. And I thought, this is exactly what the symbol is in the Lamb of God for the Savior. The blood is, represents the life He gives us. And this scripture just came to mind. It's when um, John the Baptist first introduces Jesus, the very beginning of His ministry. It's very short. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I love that because to me, it is like the entire gospel in one sentence. Here's the Lamb of God. He's going to give His life for us. He is the best offering that God has for us. And because He does that, He's going to take away the sin of the world. It's everything in one symbol and one sentence. I love how we, through the Holy Ghost, would get these opportunities to learn. Even just as you were talking about that, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to view this in a completely different, more elevated uh, way. So we have some fun things in front of us, James, and uh, more symbols of the Passover. Uh, Please, I want you to teach us what do we have in front of us. Yeah, so I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, but the Goldberg side of my family is Jewish, and so there's Jewish traditions about how to keep the Passover. So right? do you keep both of them in your whole life? Right? Absolutely. It's like my favorite holiday, oh. right? <laughs> um, I love it. I love the way it, it teaches your body, that, that sensory side. I love the music. I love um, just re keeping, keeping that captivity in remembrance. And, and the obligations that places on me to be aware of others. Um, so, that, so there's so much I love about keeping Passover and, and telling my child, right, what God did for me when he delivered me out of Egypt. My ancestors lived in exile, right? The temple was destroyed. And so they weren't doing those sacrifices of lambs anymore without the temple, but they still were keeping the commandment to remember Okay. Mm -hmm. And the way they would do that is they came up with, here's how you tell the story. But different people will read something, will discuss the story, how it relates to us. And at different times, you, you eat foods or sing songs or play games, okay. right? And I wanted to, to kind of focus on some of these foods because that's something that's, that's maybe new to a lot of people, but I think really helpful and significant, okay. right? So fairly early in the Seder, I'm going to take a spring vegetable. So I've got parsley now, doesn't need to be parsley. Um, and this reminds me like, it's spring, there's a time of new beginnings. And then I'm gonna take, this is salt water. 
and dip it in salt water and you can kind of shake it out almost like tears, right? It's spring, but we're crying. Here our ancestors are, here we are in slavery at a time that should be a time of hope and renewal, right? So you get that and you can taste it. You can taste the salt of those tears and it connects you in a different way to that experience to have the salt on your tongue than if you're just reading the mm -hmm. words from scripture, okay. right? I'm gonna have you do another symbol here. <laughs> okay. So this is horseradish, okay. right? I just want you to dip your pinky finger in that and, and take a little straight horseradish okay. because they say the bondage in Egypt was bitter. And so you eat bitter. I see your eyes getting big. I said, that's right. You're going to remember that. I'm going to remember right? that. Yeah. And when I tell my child it was bitter, they know what it means for something Absolutely. to taste bitter. There's a sensory experience yeah. for it, right? We talked a little bit about recounting the plagues in Egypt. So there are different times when we'll, when we'll bless. This is not wine. This is grape juice. Uh, traditionally, you use wine, but, okay. but grape juice is new wine, right? There's a point where we go through and list the plagues, and each person would take a drop out of this cup for each plague and say, blood, frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, slaying of the firstborn. That's a very visual, mm -hmm. visceral. It's not the same as, as active blood, but, but it's this reminder, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we've got this unleavened bread at, at the beginning. You take one and break it, right? When you say, this is the bread of affliction, uh, which our ancestors ate. So that's an important reminder. We don't do the temple sacrifice anymore, but you have a bone to remind you of Pesach, the Passover offering, right? The egg is also to remind you of the temple. And I think this is one of those later symbols that different yeah. people might understand different ways. But the temple had courts, right? And so the same way that the temple had outer courts and inner courts in your outer shell, you're moving toward the Holy of Holies, no. and egg no. is a reminder of that, right? Okay. And, so, and so it's a reminder of that, that movement. But I think it's significant that 2,000 years after they lost the temple, you have people who still know to reverence and value it. There's a Jewish holiday not many people know about that's a fast day called the 9th of Av. When you fast to commemorate the destruction of the temple, that's the day the temple was destroyed and you don't eat, okay. right? When you're mourning, sometimes you don't feel like eating, right? Like it, you're trying to get back in that experience, right? So even on Passover, we have this, this marker for the temple. Um, this... It's oh, my favorite part. Yes. <laughs> so, I different people will make it different. I make it with a lot of um, like dates and raisins. Sometimes we'll do dried apricots, so it can be sticky. It's for the bricks and mortar. Oh, in wow. Egypt, right? Okay. And so you can see I've got nuts and apples, like the bricks. It holds together. There's there's some honey. There's actually some juice in there. So if your mouth is still burning, for sweetness, you you're go allowed. For some I made three. You want to go for it? Absolutely. You just eat it just like this. Just eat it like that. There you go. And you get that all week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could eat that all day, all week. <laughs> wow, that's really good. Uh, so that's, that's the hardest. So again, the, 
the point is that as you're telling the story, right, and different people sharing, you have these, these anchors where, where your sight and your taste are engaged and helping you remember. Music is a part two, right? You'll, okay. you'll, you'll sing different parts. Um, one of the famous Passover songs is called Dayenu, uh, which means it would have been enough. So each verse will be like, if you'd given us this and, and never done this, it would have been enough. Wow. Right? We'd have been grateful just to have God reached out, even if we hadn't been delivered out of Egypt, even if we hadn't been given riches, even if, if you hadn't divided the Red Sea. And actually that song, Dayenu, culminates in the temple, right? Even if you hadn't given us the temple, temple. Um, it, it still would have been enough. So you build through that. And I, and we, I think it's great because we can see how the, the purpose of these, this meal, of this process, is to help us to remember, yep. draw our minds back. And I think these stories and these observances and this memory can help foster an attitude that, that life is a gift, right? But if these little actions in the back of your mind are reminding you of, of things God gave you, right? That, that fosters this different attitude of reverence and connection. And, and those, I think in a, in a very busy, noisy world, those are such important gifts. So now, James, I, you have a very unique, I think it's unique to me as far as somebody who was raised in Jewish culture, who is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to have this experience. I, I would just love just how, what, do you, um, what do you gain by having both of these cultures? How does that add overall to your testimony? Well, one thing my brother said is it's the law of witnesses. If, okay. if, if you think, oh, that's just what the church says, and then you realize that's what the Jews say and that's what the Sikhs say. <laughs> so it, sometimes they got you there, right? <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think to, I don't know, sometimes when we're dismissive of other religious traditions, we miss an opportunity for reverence and awe and to connect with God, right? Yeah. It just... It teaches you that the story of the gospel starts at the very beginning, and he had interaction with his children all the way through. And you learn about how he did that and how he continues to do that. They are seeking for a connection to God, and you can feel it. Thank you so much for your insights. This has been an amazing conversation, but really, I think that we've, at least me and those watching, have learned a lot. And there's a lot of stuff that we can draw from this. So thank you so much. And thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, we want to remind you that at any point, if there's something that is nudging you uh, to act, uh, that you will take the courage and you will act on those feelings. Uh, thanks again. Please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.